Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Pull out my soap box, and I'm going to climb on my little rickety soap box and talk about craziness with drug pricing. Uh, we're going to talk about pharmacy benefit managers a little bit. And I just was at a conference on AI, of all things, at the Santa Clara Medical Society last Saturday. Lots of discussion of AIs. And one person in particular uh, who works for uh, Blue, uh, Anthem Blue Cross had a lot of interesting things to say about pharmacy benefit managers. So let's... Let's just talk about exactly what we're what this is. Essentially, it's a middleman who has a contract with the insurance company to create and supply a formulary, and then they go off and they acquire the drugs at large bulk wholesale prices, basically, and then they uh, effectively manage the transaction between you, your doctor, and your insurance company. So that gets the insurance company off the hook. But very shortly, the PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers, began charging pretty high rates. So you could have a drug that costs $4, and the PBM could say that your copay is $15, and then they, were, then they would pocket the difference, and they probably didn't even pay for pay $4 for the drug. They probably paid even less for that drug. So it was good business. And at this point, it's just insane. So if you want to see some insanity, uh, you can look up your prescriptions at goodrx.com, put in the drug, and then the amount, you can click that. It's a pull-down box. So for whatever you're buying, it's fun to see what the retail price is. That's for some poor person who has to pay for it themselves. Those retail prices, by the way, are the pharmacy's retail price. And uh, this is outside of the uh, the pharmacy benefit managers, as far as I understand the Byzantine structure of this. But it is still crazy. So recently, I had the occasion to order a generic seizure drug that's been around for 30 years. It's used, among other things, for migraine prophylaxis. So it's something that you might give a person who is having lots of headaches. And in this case, I wanted to try it on a patient who was ha- who had migraines, but also had a an unusual kind of pain that I thought could be related to vascular instability. So it made sense to try topiramate for this. And then we got into her formulary situation. And so I uh, went to my handy-dandy computer and looked this up. And I just had to print this out and share it with you because the diversions in these drugs and even in the retail price are crazy. So the retail price, if you walk in off the street at Safeway, is $64. The retail price, if you walk in off the street at, uh, who came in high here, Rite Aid, it's $347. But if you get a coupon, uh, it's 
$8.74 from them. So they actually came in as the cheapest. Uh, the most expensive with a coupon, obviously they aren't playing, uh, is Walgreens at $93.22 for number 90. And then there's some home delivery services that would give it to you for thirteen ten if you bought it online. And they basically are buying ads on GoodRx, and that's how GoodRx is making its money. They are a sort of anti-pharmacy benefit manager. The problem is, you know, you need to check if your copay seems high to you or if it just popped up. I had a patient who was paying $9, and now suddenly, due to a formulary changed, unannounced, unintended, and just right after the um, just right after the close of be- the benefit switching, so she can't change for a year. Then they switch the pharmacy, and of course they're required by law to post their formularies, but they aren't inqu- required by law to to keep those formularies. And so it's been the last three years. I've noticed this: lots of prices shifting. Uh, in February, because now people are locked in for another year with their plan, and so let's sock it to him. So anyway, I told my patient that she could uh, get her drug uh, for $8.47 with the coupon, and she decided to do exactly that. And at the pharmacy of her choice, I think it worked she went to a different one, so we changed it, and it cost her 20 She was fine paying 20 She wasn't really happy um, with the retail price of 300 and I can't blame her. Is this any way to run a healthcare system? You bet it isn't. In 2010, I was in Spain, and my husband's medications got left behind um, on the Actually, they weren't left behind at home. They sort of fell out of his luggage. And so we were forced to try to get some drugs in a country where we do not have reciprocity and our insurance wasn't going to cover us. So we just paid out of pocket, cost $42 for the visit. And they apologized because they thought that was expensive. And then we went to the pharmacy and it took literally, handed over the prescription. It was paper. Uh, it, the pharmacist looked at it, smiled, went back, literally took under 30 seconds for her to pull a prepackaged box and write Charlie's name on the box and hand it over and charges $8 for the drug, which is cheaper than Charlie's copay in the United States. So I repeat, is this any way to run a healthcare system? Let's move now. I guess, should I stay on my soapbox? Yeah, I think I will, just for one more story. And this is a story about cancer and telehealth. And particularly, this is relevant to children, pediatric cases of cancer. And if there's anybody that you want to have the best doctor you can get in the country for this particular cancer in this particular child, at least the best doctor that takes your insurance, you could have that. And in a very strange way, 2020 was the silver lining for for 2020 and COVID and everything else was the fact that we had a healthcare delivery crisis and suddenly it was okay to get paid to do medical care over the telephone. Now, as someone who's been offering medical advice intended purely for education and entertainment, mind you, 
over the last 30 years, I can tell you, it's literally 31 years, crazy. Uh, I can tell you, you can do a lot over the phone. You can do even more if you've got a video screen. And I think you can do good quality telehealth medicine. And, and what happened was there was really before, uh, for most of us before 2020, telehealth was not a thing. And I'm going to just tell you very briefly about uh, little Jan Abel, uh, who's, sorry, June Abel, who developed a brain cancer and got hydrocephalus and had to have uh, multiple surgeries and finally found a doctor in Boston who was highly experienced at the one kind of radiation therapy that this child needed. Subsequently to life-saving therapy, the child, now 13, 18 months at the time of diagnosis, uh, still needs to get follow-up scans and still needs to see that specialist doctor. And they live in the state of New Jersey, where it is now illegal to meet with a doc- an out-of-state doctor to do telehealth. During the healthcare emergency, this, there was a veto on all of this, but the states are jealous of their prerogatives. And subsequent to the state of emergency being lifted last year, uh, as of December 2023, latest data I could find, uh, there are 30 states that completely ban telemedicine. That's bad if you have a rare disease. It's also arguably bad if you move out of state and you haven't found a doctor because there's a doctor shortage or a doctor desert where you moved to, and I have seen plenty of that, plenty of people moving away and then calling me and saying, uh, you know, can we still keep our relationship because I've got a six-month wait to get in to see a primary care doctor. I, I have to say, okay, what state are you in? And then check and see if I can get a, uh, a waiver. I love Utah. Uh, you know, I, re- I, love, I loved Utah for this. They... Uh, say it's anybody in the state can do telemedicine, but you have to do it for free. It's only pro only pro bono is a lie um, allowed, and I know that because I have a patient in Utah. But I, that's fine. Yeah, uh, free advice over the phone. I've been <laughs> I've been doing free advice over the radio for long enough not to count that uh, too carefully. But seriously, folks, there's no need for this, and it doesn't make any sense when you have people with special expertise or there's a shortage of doctors, and particularly for patients with who are newly Medicare and who have moved perhaps to an, an area where they don't have a medical relationship, they can run into some real difficulties just at the point when they may really need support for the transition. So to the extent that you have... Uh, a situation that you'd like to share with your California state legislature, uh, I suggest you do it because I think that California should allow telehealth with other uh, states and other countries, uh, well, other uh, other counties, sorry, other states in the United States. And I don't really see a good argument against it. We Do the insurance care, uh, companies worry that People are going to profiteer? Well, probably. But honestly, we have to worry about the health of the patients more than anything else. So let's move to emails. 
And we'll start with one from Mr. A.P. in Bristol, United Kingdom. And Mr. A. writes, chronic pancreatitis. I've also had a full blood test and fingerprint blood sugar test, and all was normal. Apart from the pain, I feel well, and my appetite and bowel movements are normal. However, I've done a bit of internet research, and I do realize that chronic pancreatitis is a progressive disease, and I need to take it seriously. So can you advise me, please? I'm 69, and I've stopped my two glasses of wine a day habit and cut down on fat. Do you have any suggestions for... Uh, please regard with supplements to reduce the inflammation and show the prog- slow the progression of the disease. Thanks, Dr. Don. So, first of all, uh, Mr. Uh, AAP, uh, I don't. I need more information, so I'm going to give a kind of general overview. Chronic pancreatitis is a situation where you have a sort of smoldering inflammation in your pancreas. It is very painful. The pain is often radiating to the back, sometimes to the shoulder because of where the pancreas is located. In acute pancreatitis, the person is very sick and any food they eat will cause them to have severe pain and generally vomiting. And our treatment is to to fast them for a few days and then to give them IV fluids and wait for the thing to settle down. But when it doesn't settle down, it becomes chronic. And so gallstone, I'm wondering if you've had any imaging and what it shows. You mentioned alcohol. That's one of the more common causes of chronic pancreatitis. Another cause, it is actually cystic fibrosis, but that's pancreatitis usually in in younger people. So I don't know your age. Something to throw out there, though. Uh, uh, gallstones and gallbladder sludge can trigger pancreatitis. And so this is called gallstone pancreatitis, and it's where you get a block in the pancreatic duct. So the juice that's stimulated hormonally when you eat, and I'll go into that in a second, but that, that juice can't get out. It stops up and it backs up into the pancreas, and it's digestive juice. So it starts to digest the pancreas, and that is a bad situation. It leads to scarring. That leads to further blockage, and we're off to the races. Sometimes people will develop what's called a pseudocyst, which is essentially a big ball of dissolved pancreatic fat and protein, in other words, melted cells that have nowhere to go, and those are often drained surgically. I don't know quite where your situation is, but at 69 and active, we'll, we'll say that you are pretty healthy. I don't know what your imaging is. That would determine some of the advice. But there are things you can do to reduce the inflammation. And one of them is antioxidants. And particularly the fat-soluble antioxidants, if you can absorb them. But vitamin C would be a, a very good thing. I might. This is a situation where I might suggest trying a vitamin C infusion if you can get that, but also just see if you can tolerate something like uh, powdered, buffered vitamin C mixed in water. You want to be careful that you don't give yourself more than about a 1,000 milligrams three times a day because you can induce diarrhea with high, with high doses, like 10,000, so more is not better. Uh, 
but also exogenous pancreatic enzymes. This is to say beef or pork enzymes that are from those animals' pancreases. And typically what we're doing here is making sure that there's enough of these enzymes taking care of breaking down proteins. And for this, I have to explain even though the what is going on here. So when you eat, you basically have food in your stomach, and that's broken down with stomach acid and pepsin and a few other enzymes. And then a little, and when the, when the stomach is ready to dump that food into, in small blollops into these, into the uh, small intestine, it, uh, it, there's a hormone that's released called uh, CRF, and it's released into the duodenum. And this is a signal that actually goes to the pancreas and causes the pancreas to release its enzymes to drop, panc- uh, drop enzymes that break down protein and enzymes that break down uh, fat into that wallop that just came out of the stomach. So now it's been reduced to mush. Now we're going to start breaking down the longer molecules and more complex molecules with specific pairs of molecular scissors. So if you give proteolytic enzymes, pancreatic enzymes in the stomach, then the, the CRF gets broken down in the stomach. So it doesn't actually cause the CCK to be released, and so you don't stimulate the pancreatic secretion. And that can substantially reduce your pain with meals. Also, in some cases, if there's exocrine insufficiency, in other words, the fat person has fat malabsorption, and you can test that by having them do a Sudan black, that's Sudan like the country in Africa, a black stain of your poop and look for, uh, look for fat. That's a simple test, probably available through the National Health Service without too much fuss. If you have fat malabsorption, then you really do need to take these enzymes particularly, because if, if the pancreas is lost enough of its meat, if it's irritated enough or sick enough, it won't produce enough of these enzymes. And that leads to a feedback loop where you produce more CCK, which stimulates the pancreas more, and it's just kind of a bad loop. So there's some reports that maybe we could make a drug for this, but right now that drug's not available. So the best thing to do is uh, take these exogenous pancreatic enzymes in a non uh, in a in a capsule or uh, a powder, but not the ones that are acid resistant capsules, because you actually want this stuff to break down in the stomach so that it prevents the CCK release, and that's it's hard to parse that a little bit but you're essentially cutting a feedback loop that leads to stimulation of the pancreas by breaking up the signal before it has a chance to arrive in the duodenum. So other things that you should be looking at, some people with chronic pancreatitis have a hard time getting B12 in. So I would recommend switching to a sublingual B12, and this is a form of B12 that you hold 
under your tongue and it dissolves and is absorbed by the by the skin mucosa of the mouth and if you take a thousand micrograms of that a day you'll probably absorb 10 percent of it and the rest will go in your stomach where it may not be absorbed because of the pancreas issue but at least you'll keep your b12 from going deficient and run into other problems now in terms of what can you eat to avoid serious weight loss obviously vegetables are good. These pancreatic enzymes will help a lot with eating a low-fat diet can cause, it can avoid pancreatic secretion, but it can also cause you to lose a lot of weight. So I want to talk about medium-chain triglycerides. And medium-chain triglycerides are absorbed into the gut without needing pancreatic juice to break them down. Break down the fat doesn't need bile either. And I've had patients who literally could not tolerate any fat and they could tolerate medium-chain triglycerides. And uh, it's absolutely tasteless. Most of them are derived from coconut oil, but it's it's absolutely tasteless. And you just take a couple, a spoon or maybe a tablespoon of this, depending on what you tolerate, uh, along with at the end of your meal. And that can help add some calories in and help you maintain yourself, and hopefully over time with the high antioxidants, and I mentioned vitamin C, but also vitamin D, vitamin E, and vitamin A can be very helpful in this context. So again, I hope that that has helped you with your issue. Our next email is just going to be a a very short one, I think, because the answer is pretty short. And this came from Jacqueline in Santa Cruz a couple of weeks ago. So, Jackie, sorry for the delay. Your question, is it the real thing that getting COVID or even vaccinations increase the risk for becoming diabetic? Are there studies for backing this up? Well, Jackie, the answer to that is yes and no. And the reason is because your question isn't sufficiently precise. Uh, So I'm going to increase the precision and say, in case of the most common adult diabetes, which is type 2 diabetes, the one that doesn't knock out your pancreas, and your pancreas basically makes these digestive enzymes, but it also makes insulin. So it's a dual organ. It releases some things into the bloodstream and some things into the digestive tract. It's the only organ of its kind that has this dual purpose. Fun fact. But anyway, type 1 diabetes most often occurs in children, There are several articles that I found, so there is statistical evidence, uh, mostly based on claims and timing of of new diagnoses. So one study that I found fairly compelling basically looked at the incidence of type 1 diabetes in Bavaria between 2018 and between 2020 and 2021. And if you stop and think about it, probably there was not substantially big differences in the number of children in Bavaria nor is it likely that there was substantial migration uh, in that period of time. So we can take it as a kind of an apples-to-apples comparison. And they looked very carefully at their data. This is a a country that has national health and good data. And let's see, they had claims data for 85% of the total Bavarian population. So I'd say that's pretty good. They found 1,181 children Uh, with claims data, 1,200 
and Change received a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes through 2019. And then then that number was higher in uh, between 2020 and 2021. So the frequency of a first diagnosis of COVID-19 was, of course, pretty low in in January to March. And then it went up to about much higher in October to December because it's an epidemic. So if you follow that, the rate of change in diabetes was statistically significant between the two time periods. That's not surprising because type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease, and it's considered to be triggered by viruses. In fact, it's that's this is one of the tr- the diseases where when we say, oh, it's just caused by a virus, it's, pro- it's probably entirely true. Type 2 diabetes is quite hereditary, but type 1, less substantially less so, so as twin studies show us, identical twins. You'd expect, if it was hereditary, a much higher rate in the second twin. And in fact, the second twin does not have a higher rate compared to the first twin who got diabetes. So if you compare identical and fraternal twins, you've got pretty good data saying, yeah, it's not hereditary. So what do we say? We say, well, COVID inflamed the immune system. We are seeing at least a 10 to 15% in bump in autoimmune diagnoses post-COVID. And what we're not seeing, and I want to point out, in 2021-22, after the vaccine becomes available, we do not see a, this going up and up and up. And at this point, most of the children in Bavaria have been vaccinated. And what we're seeing is that the rate of type 1 diabetes is back to its 2018 through 2019 data. Now, this is epidemiological data, Jackie, and it's messy. But I feel it's persuasive. And there is other countries that have similar data, that the that there was a bump, yes, and the bump was due to COVID, not to COVID vaccine. And so uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Looks like we've got a phone call coming in. Uh, hello, this is Dr. Don. You're on the air. Hi, Dr. Don. Hi. Who's this? Jean from Pacific Grove. Yes, Jean. Hi. It's nice to okay. hear from you. What are you calling about? Okay. I think I called last time about my uh, friend who's 85 Mm -hmm. and has AFib. And we talked about ablation. Yes, we did. Yes. Oh, you you are good. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So the, the thing is, he gave his cardiologist his friends, his, uh, he has a friend who has a, do- a Harvard-trained doctor, who's a, and he gave him his card and said, could you tell him what you think about my uh, response or whatever for my AFib? Mm-hmm. What do you have to say? He has not. So my question is, uh, I know there are doctors who don't like being questioned. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, is that a possibility in this situation? 
Well, as uh, they would say on Perry Mason, which I think you're old enough to remember, that calls for speculation in advance of the facts. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Objection. Okay. So, honestly, I have learned over the years that you want to treat people with respect and with the presumption that they are doing the right thing as they see it. Now, that is a rebuttable presumption. In other words, it may prove itself wrong. But it, but take, but assuming good attentions on the part of doctors is not a bad bet. There are some bad apples out there, but most of them are just busy, and probably are don't have the bandwidth to uh, do more than try to manage the patients they've got and the demand they've got. And so, having prolonged discussions, I've given you my advice, and that's it. And call me if you want to take it or not. Uh, that could be all it is. I mean, this may this is the guy who would be doing the ablation, I assume, and yes. so he does ablations. He doesn't want to. He doesn't. He likes to do procedures. He doesn't like to talk about the procedure. He likes to do it, and then he likes to do it again, and then he likes to do it again, and so uh, they vary, you know. But that could be who he is, and I would say as long as he does good ablations, he's you know he's within his rights not to want to do the uh, the sort of messy, wet work of talking to patients, which can be a, a big-time thief. I'm, you know, I'm trying to give you a hint into why he may not have responded that still makes him an honest, good person, but just sort of busy. Uh, but my, my attitude, and I'll reiterate, for, your, for anybody who's older who has AFib, you have to recognize... What are you know? What are the limitations? How how much does getting fifteen percent back mean to you? How how bothered are you? And not psychologically by being having a fib, but by the by the limitations on your activities, because it, it can be a big hit and it can be much better if you get the ablation. But this is a big procedure for anybody, and your friend's age makes me think twice about the appropriateness of it, just because of. Uh, you know, what's he going to get back? How bad off did he, how bad off is he compared to what he was before he got the AFib? And I want to just go Chinese medicine on you for a second here and say that when you have an injury to the heart, that can cause a lot of depression. There's, you know, there's strong, there's strong Western epidemiological evidence that that depression after a heart attack is a thing when there's an emotional shock, it can actually stun the heart. There's a big cable called the vagus nerve going between the brain and the heart. And so it isn't unusual for people who have a heart illness to feel depressed, And but that's from the Chinese medicine stuff. So it might be worth, if he does decide to see if he can feel better, it might be worth you know, talking to a counselor seeing if he's depressed because he's mortal and this has gotten in his face and made him really think about it. Because uh, that, that happens. I've, I've seen that a lot of times. The first, you're healthy and you think of yourself as healthy and you don't really think of yourself as mortal until, you know, something shakes, until someone in a black cowl comes up and, you know, shakes a stethoscope at you and then you're like, oh, yeah. So I can't speak to, those are things that if I were your friend's doctor, I would ask him about you know what's his capacity what capacity to lose and emotionally 
you know, how is this affecting the way you think about yourself? Have you reframed, you're doing some reframing right now, then let's get you to someone who can help you do it. Oh, that's, uh, that's brilliant because he has been depressed. Uh, my only question would be, uh, why can't a very successful doctor who's a friend of his contact the cardiologist? I, I can't speak to that. I can, you know, I would, I would be, <laughs> I, I know that. I'm going to take the fifth, but thank you for the call. Bye for now. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Get good. Bye bye. This uh, is Judy in Alabama, and Judy writes: Evinity for osteoporosis. Uh, Dear Doctor Don, thank you so much for your podcast. I learn a lot from you. Would you consider discussing eventity? Romosozumab. I love that Romosozumab, uh, an osteoporosis drug taken monthly by injection for twelve months. Two years ago, my bone mass went into the osteoporosis range. I delayed treatment at that time because of major impending dental work. And the most recent scan had no statistical change from two years ago. But I'm almost finished with my dental work and think maybe I ought to get treatment for osteoporosis once the dentist is finished. My doctor mentioned Evinity to me. All the drugs have... Uh, for osteoporosis have scary side effects, and this one does too. Would you please discuss the pros and cons of this treatment versus others on the market? A small history. I took Fosamex for five years beginning in 2005. After going off it, I elected to go to physical therapy to strengthen and protect my muscles and bones. I've been doing the exercises they gave me ever since. I walk three miles Six days a week, I lift eight-pound hand weights three times a week, as well as some resistance bands. I did pretty well with the bone scans till recently. I'm female, age 76, weigh 155 pounds, 5.7 tall and shrinking, and take no prescription drugs. I do take supplemental calcium and vitamin D, as well as eat a good amount of calcium-rich foods. Well, this just fits right in with my soapbox topic, the first one about drug prices, This is a brand new drug. It was released in 2019. It's a monoclonal antibody against something called sclerostin, and it's used to treat osteoporosis in postmenopausal women at high risk of fracture, including patients who've had an osteoporotic fracture, who have multiple risk factors, or that have failed or are intolerant to other available osteoporosis drugs. So before we go further, let me start, let me stop and say, okay, you heard the word high risk of fracture. And high risk of fracture does not mean falling into the osteoporosis range of a T-score of minus 2.5. In my opinion, it is that in and of itself is not a reason to automatically knee-jerk treat someone. You have to look at there are other risk factors, and those include family history of a fragility fracture in your mother or a sibling. Uh, they include a history of smoking or a history of alcoholism or a history of large amounts of steroid use. All of, uh, all of these things can increase your risk of fracture. Now, you mentioned here that you were on Fazomax for five years back almost uh, 20 years ago, and you don't tell us why you went off of it. 
And I think that's super important. So you've uh, been doing, it sounds like, physical therapy for many years and uh, doing all the walks and the hand weights. So if I'm reading your your email correctly at 76, if you're just getting into osteoporosis territory, then... You, you really should just get a FRAX score, F-R-A-X. And if you Google that, you'll, be, you'll see a link to the University of Sheffield F-R-A-X uh, algorithm. And you can go there and you can enter in your height, your weight, check boxes about when any of the additional risk factors you have. And you can enter in your bone density and the type of machine they tested you on. And then that will give you your probability of your 10 year probability of a fracture. And it'll give it to you as hip and spine. And the one you really care about is the hip fracture number because if you get little pancake fractures on your spine, those are often painless. And you really have to think twice about using a drug at all, in my opinion. But I don't know about your hormone history. I don't know if you're even on hormone supplementation currently. I would throw out from a natural medicine standpoint, uh, you should be taking some vitamin K2 in the form of MK7, 8, or 9, and about about 200, 150 to 200 micrograms of that because all that calcium you're taking, you want that to go into your bones and not into your arteries. So getting back to this interesting monoclonal antibody and the other drugs that are out there. First of all, let's talk about Romosozumab. And uh, this is a recent discovery based on on our ability to look at the genome now. So there's a medical disorder uh, called sclerosteosis. And it's actually a disease of too much bone. These people keep building bone, and it turns out that the reason they do is because they have an overactive gene that codes for this protein, SOST. So what they discovered was that this gene is, uh, is, is the gene for this, so, for this soostin, and so it, uh, if it's overactive, you get overactive bone, and that's not good for you. So sclerosin, sclerosin is the name of the, of, the, of the product of the SOST gene. So they, the anti, taking a monoclonal and, atta- and causing it to, making it up to attack the protein is a, a common medical strategy right now. And it's wonderful because because it's a biologic, it's very hard for generics to exist. So you get to keep that $2,000 price tag. Oh, did I mention the cost of this drug? $2,400 per month. And as I said, it was only released for people at high risk. So first, let's find out if you're high risk. Cost is, of course, outrageous. Uh, other drugs. So there is a parathyroid hormone analog called teripotiride, and this is expensive. It's given by weekly injections, and it's this was the drug that we usually used for people who were, uh, well, in a situation of severity where they couldn't tolerate any other drug. Then there's denosumab, 
which inhibits something called Rankle, receptor activator of nuclear factor kappa beta ligand, uh, also known as TNFSF11. (laughs) These names are so crazy. Anyway, that one is a target of a different monoclonal antibody, and that, that one's been around for, I'd say, close to a decade. Also proprietary, no generic, very expensive. Uh, so I, I know a bit about that one. Uh, but the, the bisphosphonates are really the, they're now available and out there as generics. So if, you're, if you are at high risk, the first question to ask is, am I going to have a problem with Fosamax? As far as we understand, the mid-femur shaft fracture that everyone is worried about is occurring with all of these drugs, including this one, but we don't. it doesn't have enough of a track record for us to know for sure. What we do know in terms of the romosozumab is that there are low calcium levels, osteonecrosis of the jaw, the reason that you delayed for your uh, for your therapy, and uh, they have they are, apparently have been in the early clinical trials the atypical femoral fractures, and this one has an increased risk of myocardial infarction. Maybe the problem is if you've only given it to say four thousand people in your preclinical trials, and you're mainly giving it to older women, it would have to have a fairly big. Uh, increased risk of myocardial infarction, or it would have to be given to a fairly large amount of people before you would really be sure that that increased risk would rise above the statistical noise. Such uh, are the realities of drug development. So we've got a broken market. I, that's, I'm a, I've got a broken record. I keep saying we've got a broken healthcare market. Uh, this isn't the fact that your doctor even mentioned this to you based on my. Pres- presumptions that you're probably at, with a T-score between 2.5 and 3 means that he's being detailed on it. He's, it's being promoted to him. If that's where your level is, in my opinion, you do not need to be the first person on your block to take this because I'm because your risk is probably not that high. But go ahead and run yourself through the facts. It's facts. It's free. And it'll give you your 10-year risk you can take that back to your doctor and have a discussion about some of the generic agents or even just continuing what you're doing. And uh, you may have been more inactive. I don't know when your last scan was, but I would suggest it's possible you were less active during COVID. I know that a lot of people's uh, bone density scores bumped up a little more than you would have expected from just general aging and attrition. So possibly that is a factor here as well. I mentioned that I was hoping to do a little microbiome, but it's not human gut microbiome. It's not mouth microbiome. It's not even eyeball or ear canal microbiome, although they all have them. It's tea microbiome. So this research was published in Current Biology, and the key to a perfect cup of tea it's not whether you put the milk in boiling water or you put the boiling water in the milk or you don't put the milk in at all or you use lemon. It's none of those things. It turns out that the fungi and bacteria living around the plant's roots can significantly affect its its growth. Now, they normally do this kind of work on 
a type of watercress called uh, aribidosis. But uh, the presence of the right microbes, the right bugs around the roots can enhance the absorption of iron, phosphorus, and nitrogen. And the enhanced nitrogen absorption was is particularly uh, interesting to tea experts because uh, tea plants rely on nitrogen-rich ammonium in the soil around their roots to produce theanine. That's what gives you. That's what gives tea both its lovely flavors and its relaxing qualities. Theanine actually gets into the brain and is a mild sort of vegetal valium, uh, and that's one of the reasons why when you drink. Uh, tea versus coffee, you don't get quite so jangled is because the theanine actually survives the process that turns green tea into black tea. So they looked at 17 different tea varietals at different times of the Ds, and they found that the theanine production varied widely, even among teas that were almost the same species. And they were uh, looking specifically, they honed in on oolong teas, because this these teas are expensive they require a little more processing and some and some of the leaves the rugai uh, species produced a lot of theanine while while others the maxi didn't produce much so they grew them in identical conditions and they collected soil samples and they did genetic analysis and they to see which microbes were there around the roots and the microbiomes of the two plants were very very different the rugai the one with the more uh, theanine had more microbes associated with metabolizing nitrogen. So they were able to absorb more nitrogen from the ammonium in the soil. And in the winter, excuse me, in the fall, moving into the winter, these differences were particularly uh, stark, particularly varied. So they thought, well, what if we transplant the microbiome? So sort of like rather than a gut transplant, which, you know, we've heard about human fecal microbiome transplants a lot in the last decade. What if we did this with the soil. And what they did was they uh, put together the microbes of the 21 bacterial strains that were found around the roots in autumn. And then they applied them to the roots of the, uh, of the other species of plants. So not only did they see increased growth, but they tripled the theanine accumulation, these theanine accumulation in the leaves just by changing the soil. Now, most farmers, let's, let's broaden this focus out. Most farmers add nitrogen fertilizers to their soil to enhance growth. And some of this is absorbed, but a whole heck of it runs off during rains and ends up in natural water bodies. Have you seen the duckweed at Pinto Lake? So when the researchers applied this cocktail to soil around the roots of other plants, they found that increased nitrogen uptake. So maybe we will be able to reduce or even eliminate nitrogen fertilizers if we can just get the microbiome right. And in the case of your own microbiome, there are many fermented foods that are very healthy that can, if you find a couple that you like, you can either make them or buy them. There's plenty of places ready to sell you kombucha. And it's, it really is good for you. And it's, uh, it, that plus fiber. So the fiber needs to be in there and the all of the fibers that are the best are the fibers that come from you guessed it root vegetables so eating just baked root vegetables and a fermented food 
every couple of days. It's going to give you a lot of help getting your microbiome into great shape and helping you be, be less inflamed. And inflammaging, inflammation plus aging, is essentially the root of what eventually kills us one way or another. We're all, sure, we're all going to die, but let's slow the process down of the deterioration as much as we can. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.